0: warning this episode contains descriptions of violence listener discretion is advised sam Edis grew up in new york city and first started playing tennis when she was eight years old she was on a trip with her parents at a hotel where they had a tennis court and asked for a lesson but she really became a tennis player at sleepaway camp pointo pines she was eight years old when she first started and it was there that she met gary walensky at camp Gary was a showman. He even started playing tennis on roller skates.
1: He was a huge personality at camp, and he, you know, the kids gravitated towards him because he was very interested in kid things, which obviously in hindsight is not very typical of an adult. Uh, But he was constantly trying to engage kids and and often the center of attention because he Play tennis on roller skates and he would wear, you know, cartoon characters on sweatshirts and things like that.
0: When the summer was over, Sam started playing with Gary two to three times a week at Midtown Tennis Club after school.
1: I guess he singled me out as a, a, a person who had talent. And so he started paying a lot of attention to me. And uh, I spent a lot of that summer on the tennis court. And then when I returned to New York City, Uh, at the end of the summer, I started taking private lessons from him.
0: He eventually became her full-time coach. He was on salary. He may have taught other players on the side, but he was coaching Sam five days a week.
1: He would also go with me to tournaments on the weekends, um, to Eastern Tennis Association tournaments, which I played probably two out of every three weekends. So I would usually have a match on a Friday night, and then I would have two matches on a Saturday and two matches on a Sunday. You know, if you keep winning, you, you keep playing. So I would often spend the whole weekend at a tournament, and he would drive there in the car in the backseat with me and my mom in the front.
0: Gary took his job extremely seriously. Sam wasn't even 13 years old at the time, but Gary started assembling records of tournaments so that he could gather as much information as
1: possible. He was, you know, obsessed with my ranking and, and, and trying to, you know, make sure I won and And so I remember he used to go to the Eastern Tennis Association um, headquarters and like collect the draw sheets from the tournaments, maybe that were upstate New York or ones that I hadn't played in. And then he kept this book of every player in my age group and who they'd um, beat and who they'd lost to. Um, And so then let's say I was playing someone named Jody, he would have Jody's record on a sheet with her weaknesses and strengths and, you know, he took it very, very seriously.
0: After matches, when they traveled, Gary would go out to dinner with her and her mom. And sometimes, he even came over in the city after practice. And Gary's own father would sometimes watch Sam play. But Gary opened up to Sam about his childhood, and the stories he told were extremely concerning.
1: I remember him telling me once that his father would take... When he had friends over, he would, like, call him downstairs and put out a cigarette on his hand I mean like very very sick abusive things um at the time obviously I didn't know how bizarre it is to share that with a child you're coaching right I mean it's not appropriate but I was just young and didn't didn't appreciate that
0: as she continued playing with him she started noticing strange parts of his personality Gary would fight with her and these fights were intense and her parents had to intervene.
1: I was always very aware of how unusual Gary was, and it didn't feel right to me a lot of the time. And I remember we used to get into fights, and I really can't remember what those fights are about, because why are you fighting with a 10-year-old? I mean, like, it's not, I would have never had a fight with my own 10-year-old. Like, he, you know, even if he's, like, in a bad mood, we don't get in a fight per se. So it's very strange to get in a fight with a child. I mean, I, I just know that we would get in such bad fights that my dad would have to um, – my dad wasn't that involved with my tennis because my, my dad would be with my brother when my mom was taking me to tennis. So I know that my dad has always been kind of like a very rational mediator kind of person. And so he would – end up having to my mom would take my side and then and then gary and my dad would talk and my dad would kind of like talk gary off of a ledge and then um we'd reconcile and start playing together again
0: the antics continued one time gary brought a football mask for sam to wear as part of tennis practice this is the coach who taught at usta development workshops espousing his beliefs to coaches across the country
1: He would hit balls at me really fast when I was at the net and so he said that to conquer my fear I would have to start wearing a football mask to hit volleys and so he bought a football mask for me and made me wear it for a few lessons until I overcame my fear so to speak. Um, So he had like a lot of unconventional things like that that I just remember that like really upset me and I mean what 10 year old girl wants to wear a football mask during tennis practice? I mean you know nobody does.
0: Finally, after a tournament in Westchester, when Sam noticed Gary continuing to behave abnormally, she said she had enough, but she had to take matters into her own hands.
1: I remember my parents kind of were not advocates of me stopping taking lessons from Gary, and so they kind of made it difficult for me and said, if you're going to stop taking lessons from him, you're going to have to fire him yourself.
0: So that's what she did. She called him at the age of 13.
1: So... I called him and told him I didn't want to take lessons from him anymore. And then a few months or weeks later, maybe I don't know when, but I received a package, and uh, it was a package of, I don't know, I guess memorabilia from my tennis career, like you know, newspaper articles and pictures and... Other things like that I remember there was a mug with my picture all over it and then there was this a long letter uh, written in all different colors color markers and um, it was basically like a plea for I understand you don't want me to be your coach but why can't we be friends and then my friend Lara was over um, when I received this package and I remember my mom coming in the phone rang and she said Gary's on the phone can you thank him And I said, absolutely not. I don't need a 46-year-old friend. And I took the package, and I, I guess for emphasis, I threw it down the garbage chute in, in the hallway. And that was it.
0: She later learned that Gary was so devastated by the firing that he didn't take on any new individual clients for years. But Gary reappeared in her life.
1: My parents used to fight about my mom's love of cats. My dad really never liked cats. And so when our last cat passed away, it was kind of understood that we weren't going to get cats again. So one day my brother and I were home alone. Apartment buzzer rang and I picked it up and the doorman said, Gary, uh, your friend Gary is in the lobby and he has some uh, something he wants to bring you. As a, you know, he's a present for you. And so... We let him up. I mean, my parents had not said, okay, if Gary comes, don't let him up. Like, they didn't think there was anything egregious about him. So it wasn't like, he wasn't considered forbidden in any way. It was me who had ended um, him being my coach. And so he came upstairs and in his arms was a kitten. And he said, I just got this kitten and I wanted you to have it. And so we were so excited, like any kids would be, about this adorable little kitten that was in our hands. And then he left, and my parents came home. And you can imagine they walked in the door, and we have a kitten. And they said, like, what's going on? And we said, oh, Gary brought us a kitten. And then they were really upset because they, I guess, had a sense that this was like his way of being very manipulative and – causing some friction in our family and of course my parents made us give it back and so then that made them into the bad guys and we were crying and um i think you know at the time we couldn't understand or appreciate the significance of of doing that
0: even though gary's presence in sam's life began to dwindle he continued coaching throughout the city sam's instincts that gary was creepy turned out to be absolutely correct Only a few years after Sam stopped taking lessons from him, he was arrested, just over a mile away from where she went to school. And it didn't come to light until years later. That's after the break. Gene Arena's son went to school on the Upper East Side. He had just started taking the bus to school with his friend in 1988, when he noticed a strange looking man board the bus with him. Here's Gene.
2: He had some kind of a ski mask on, and he would wait for them to uh, take the next bus up Madison, where there's a lot of uh, schools up there.
0: On 66th Street and First Avenue, the boys would board the bus. The man got on too. They take it to Madison and 57th where they'd switch buses to take one uptown. It was here that the man watched them and videotaped them.
2: My son was afraid because he saw them, saw this man all the time and he thought he was a little weird. And then he was pounding his hand when they were waiting for a bus one day and mumbling some stuff and that's the thing that uh, triggered it with my son. So when he got when they got home from school They talked to the other boy's father who took them to the police station because uh, they were very upset by this guy.
0: Here's the other boy's mother, Arlene Lamarca, in a television appearance talking about the case.
3: And then my husband for a week followed behind uh, John and Joe while they walked to the bus stop to see if he would see this man. And he did. He saw the man. The man was wearing um, a mask, as the boys had reported. He was wearing a wig and a, a ski cap and spandex pants. And he really was across the street videotaping them. My husband right away called the police. Uh, the police also did a stakeout.
0: On the day of the stakeout, the police sent plainclothes officers to watch the situation for themselves. Jean walked behind the boys at a distance. The other boy's father walked ahead of them. The police got the man and arrested him. Jean and the other boy's mother wanted to learn more about the strange man and figure out who he was.
2: We wanted to know what he looked like because we had no idea. And um, the district attorney's office said that he was a man who had helped so often in teaching underprivileged, children had to play tennis (laughs) right
0: when the police searched his apartment jean said they found tapes of kids he was stalking it turned out the man was stalking a girl who was at the same bus stop as them
3: Uh, the da's office showed us his scrapbook which they had the scrapbook contained pictures of him with children coaching children uh and my my children were very frightened but the da uh, informed the boys that they didn't need to be that frightened because he was really stalking the young girl, a 14-year-old 14 14 year girl, who was also waiting at the same bus stop. But through the videotapes that they found in the, behind his car and in his apartment, they saw that he was stalking her to school and then stalking her on the way home from school.
0: Jean and the other boy's parents were determined to put an end to this man's behavior.
2: And uh, we made a complaint about him because the police said he was dangerous. We we tried to bring something against him and then they
3: had a hearing I believe downtown where we were. Here's Arlene. Um, My husband in some way had been involved with the police uh, in this trying to capture this man. He accompanied the police to uh, his apartment building and waited outside And the police came down and said that in his uh, apartment he had hundreds of videotapes of children and he had many uh, objects used in sexual torture and that what he was wearing, which was not a ski mask as the boys had described, it was called a sex mask. We had no idea what a sex mask was. He was arrested? He was arrested, yes. We then had to go down to the DA and we went to an arraignment. The DA called us and spoke to us and we went to the arraignment. When the DA spoke to us, the DA informed us uh, that they had a a file on this man. This was not the first time. They knew about him and that he was seeing a, a psychiatrist, but that they didn't want to really, they didn't want to press charges because had they pressed charges, had we pressed charges and prosecuted, he would have lost his job coaching children.
0: They got his name, Gary Walensky. They looked him up. And Arlene called around town to let his employers know what had happened.
2: She called because she called very early and said, uh, this man is following and he's, he's a, a tennis instructor and he instructs uh, children at your school and the children were all girls, it's a girls' school. Uh, so that's when she called and nobody did anything, nobody let him go or said, forget it.
0: Jean never did see him in person again, but she decided to call Gary because maybe she'd recognize his voice or feel better prepared if she came across him in the future.
2: I called once and tried to hear what he sounded like. I uh, figured that was his name, so I would call and see if I could. And then this guy answered. And, you know, I, I never said a word to him. I just wanted to hear his voice. Just in (laughs) case, with the mask on, I heard his voice somewhere, you know? Hello. Because at that point, we didn't know who he was after.
0: Henry Putzel, Gary's lawyer in the matter, doesn't recall many events from the time, but he does remember bringing in Gary's psychotherapist to the DA's office.
4: I, I represented him in my negotiations with the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. I don't have any recollection of. Who the assistant district attorney was, whom I, with whom I dealt, um, I do know. Again, from uh, uh, with, with the help of newspaper accounts, that I, I ended up bringing um, uh, the, the the client's psychotherapist in to speak directly with the uh, assistant district attorney.
0: Putzel recalled, with the aid of newspapers that the DA's office didn't believe Walensky posed a threat to the community.
4: As a result of of that series of negotiations, the matter was, uh, uh, as we say, ACD'd, that is adjourned in contemplation of dismissal, in 1988 on the condition that he continued to see his therapist. I also see from the newspaper article, and this is consistent with my general recollection, that at the time, the question of whether he was a danger, he was viewed as a danger to the uh, to children or to to the public, was raised by the district attorney's office, and the uh, therapist uh, assured the um, the prosecutors that, in his view, uh, Mr. Walensky was not a danger. Now, I cannot say that I recall this independently of the newspaper article, but I'm quite confident that, that this is uh, the way it happened.
0: For years, the incident scarred Gene's son.
2: At that point, it was very bad for my son, who was uh, young enough to, it was the first time he had ever taken a bus, you know, not the school bus that we usually had to go on. He wouldn't go to it. you know, he wouldn't want to stay overnight in anybody's house. And we had to have uh, somebody taking him to school, him and his friend to school. We had to get somebody who could do that because we were all working parents and and, uh, we couldn't do that.
0: One of Gary's former girlfriends, Elaine, remembered a separate incident years prior, in the 1970s, involving another teenage girl. Elaine and Gary weren't dating at the time, but she was involved in a dispute with him over things he had taken. She remembered this about the girl years later in a television interview.
3: He gave up his apartment on East 52nd Street because at the time he had an obsession with another young girl, a 13 year old girl, and he told me about this girl. And I became more and more frightened about the girl. She went to boarding school and he was going up there and watching her. And I somehow (coughs) talked to him enough about this that he revealed who she was. Where she lived, and I contacted her mother and Gary's father to let him know about what was going on. Did
5: you follow that up? Did you hear whatever happened with the parents? I of spoke the to girl? her mother,
3: and she was. She said that she was afraid of what was going on. She wasn't aware of, of, of the extent of it, but her daughter was afraid of him, <laughs> and she put an end to it. I have no idea what happened after that.
0: There was clearly a pattern of stalking. First, the boarding school girl, and now the girl in Manhattan. Arlene Lamarcus said the police were aware of Walensky. Could it have been from the incident involving the girl at boarding school? It's unclear, but there's a good chance. Stalking laws became much stricter in New York in the years that followed the 1988 incident. His lawyer at the time agrees that the outcome would have been different if later laws were enacted sooner.
4: I am quite confident that uh, if, if laws if there had been anti-stalking laws on the books um, in 1988, when I represented Mr. Walensky, um, uh, he would have been charged with far more serious offenses, and, and uh, in this case would have received a, a very different. Uh, uh, th- there would have been a very different outcome in 1988.
0: More after the break. By 1993, Walensky had evaded the law and gotten away with decades of misbehavior. In the years prior, his business had expanded. He took on new clients and started at a new camp and began coaching an all-girls school's tennis team. It was around this time that he met Jennifer Rhodes, a 16-year-old top tennis player from Manhattan. He started coaching her in April of 92, and after a break in the summer, it picked up again in the fall. But what started out as coaching eventually devolved into obsession. Here's Stephen Heider, the detective lieutenant in Colony at the time of the Walensky matter in 1993.
6: You know, they realized that when it just became nonstop cards, letters, uh, gifts, uh, strange you know, phone calls in the middle of the night, you know, it was a total obsession that the parents recognized that he had with their daughter, and that's why they took care of it.
0: Jennifer's family fired him, but they continued to hear from him. He wrote them a letter apologizing for what transpired.
6: They're basically apologizing, hoping to continue, hoping to go on. Um, and you know, this was in direct violation of what the mother asked him not to do.
0: After the letter, Jennifer's mother again told Gary to stop it.
6: She made it explicitly clear to him, you know, that she didn't want anything to do with him, that he should not contact them. Uh, And then he did again. At which time, I believe they had another conversation and the mother basically begged him to, you know, hey, let it go for six months, let's be done here. And then at that point, they really didn't hear from him again.
0: Jennifer's mother suggested he see a psychiatrist and actually recommended one to him. He began seeing her, but the psychiatrist didn't foresee the tragedy that was to come. He
6: actually was seeing a psychologist or a psychiatrist at this time, uh, she felt he was suicidal, but not homicidal, um, and that uh, he wouldn't be da- of danger to the victim or her family. And all the while she's counseling him and feeling this way, he's having a purchasing spree. He spent over 10 grand at one of the uh, I spy shops in Manhattan um, on anything from cameras, handcuffs, uh, rigging equipment, um, monitoring equipment.
0: He bought all of this equipment for a house in upstate New York that he rented. A cabin. But how did he land on the house in the Adirondacks? It's something that initially puzzled Hyder.
6: We were intrigued as how he knew about that area. I mean this is seventy miles north in the middle of nowhere on Cemetery Road in the town of North River, New York. Okay? And you really need work you need to work to find it. But what we were able to determine in, in looking into his life, every summer he taught tennis at one of the camps for kids. Uh, about 10 miles from his camp. So that's his connection to the North Country. Because, you know, how's the guy from Manhattan to know about Cemetery Road and you know, North River? Well, he knew about it because for a number of years, until he was, I think he was fired from that job for, you know, odd behavior, he taught at a camp about 10 miles away.
0: He rented the cabin for a full year and paid for it in cash. The inside of the cabin looked like a torture chamber with equipment you only see in horror movies. He also had an X-rated video entitled, Jennifer's Nightmares. Police would later discover the cabin during their investigation.
6: Uh, He had signed the lease for April 1st, um, paid 10,000 in cash for a whole year, uh, basically told the real estate agent, don't come to show the camp for a year. You know, somewhere along the line, this guy just was split between him thinking he was gonna live there in peace and happiness with a woman he loved, and that but on the same token he had beds you know made up with chains and handcuffs and uh, enough security equipment to know where every movement in that cabin was at any time he could remotely see what was going on in the cabin um he had made it so that even the driveway was uh, under camera vision and uh let's put it this way cameras are very prevalent today but this was 27 years ago you know it was cameras were primitive at best but he had the whole the whole place set up. You know, he had the windows all boarded up, but he had curtains on the inside, outside of the boards. So if you looked at that camp from the driveway, it looked like a normal camp. Yeah. Everything about the place looked normal until you went inside.
0: Here's Hider in an interview from 1993, talking about the cabin and its contents.
6: It had all kinds of restraints on the beds, on any type of fixed furniture. There was change in restraints.
0: By mid-April. Gary had missed appointments with his psychiatrist.
6: He'd skipped a couple appointments. On April 7th, he had gone in to see her and he told her that he had taken control of his life and wouldn't need her services anymore. And that was right at the time that he was buying the guns um, and all this iSpy equipment from the spy shop. So, you know, he was, he had taken control all right because he was going to do something very bad.
0: On April 14th, the girls at the Manhattan Center for Science and Math were playing Jennifer's school in a tennis match in the Bronx. The Manhattan Center's tennis coach, Peter schmidt Noara, spotted a man in a car with binoculars and a telephoto lens looking at one of the players.
5: Some of my players said to me, hey Schmidt, everyone called me Schmidt, um, look, look over your shoulder, there's a guy sitting in a car with a wig and a fake beard. And so I looked, and sitting there was a person with a, a fake beard and a, uh, a wig, he had a hat too, uh, with a telephoto lens, with the window open, directing it at the tennis courts. And my players just sort of thought it was kind of weird. And they said, well, why don't you go say something Schmidt? So I said, yeah, okay, I will. He approached the car. So I stood up and I walked down to the car and I sort of leaned down into the open window, and I said, "Excuse me, sir. My players and I were wondering why are you wearing a fake beard and a wig?" If he was trying to get uh, to to be in disguise, he was doing an incredibly horrible job of it. Uh, it just looked ridiculous, his outfit or his 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 you know his his, his disguise. Uh, and but I guess he said he was just you know was doing as a prank or something. And then he Immediately turned his car on and just drove off.
0: Just over a week later, Walensky would appear in disguise again, but he would turn
5: violent. So I remember that being in the news and you know this huge light bulb going over off my, above my head saying, oh my God, that must have been that guy.
0: The crime that sent shockwaves through the small town of Colony and the country on the next episode of Crossover. On behalf of Mauer Media, I'm Henry Lynch.